the words of our Lord in John chapter 10 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Uh, Thus far, the reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I notice that there is a number of teachers uh, amongst us. There is a teaching practice out there called giving a preparatory set. Uh, Now, a preparatory set is some sort of introduction into what it is that you're going to be teaching the students for that day. It's some sort of activity. Normally, usually, it's uh, it's indirectly related to the day's lesson, or maybe it's uh, something that's used in order to advance some indirect idea into the minds of the students to kind of prepare them for the main topic for that day. Uh, preparatory sets can either take a few minutes uh, or even a few seconds, or they could take you know a large segment of the first part of of, of the class. And uh, what it's made to do is to kind of get the, get the kids or the students prepared for whatever is going to be coming. This is what we just read. This right here, our passage this evening, is Jesus' preparatory set for his teaching from verses 7 through, oh, probably perhaps 18. And for his preparatory set, the Lord Jesus is doing something that's unique in the Gospel of John, Uh, You probably noticed, and I've probably mentioned before, that the Gospel of John doesn't contain parables, at least not any parables like the one that you're perhaps normally used to that you would find in the other Gospels. Now, to be sure, in this uh, Gospel, you'll find metaphors and such. Uh, I am the door, he will uh, be saying. I am the bread of life, and uh, so forth. You'll find metaphors like this strewn throughout the Gospel, but not prolonged parables that do the same things as the others that you know and love very well. This passage here, I believe, is the closest thing that comes to a parable in the Gospel of John. And now, it's not known as a parable in our passage. It's known, verse 6, as a figure of speech. Uh, some of the commentaries certainly uh, call it a parable. You can just as easily call it a proverb, a, a maxim, an epigram, or something like, uh, like that. But he uses this figure of speech to say something about himself that's much grander that I'll elaborate upon uh, later in following verses and certainly in following sermons. And this uh, kind of figure of speech is also structured in such a way that kind of once you see it, you can't unsee it. You'll know what is really important about what he says here and what is the important thing that he's saying here in this, his preparatory set. He cares. Uh, Jesus cares for you. He cares for you individually. He cares for us corporately. He knows you. Uh, He knows everything that there is about you. Uh, He calls you by name. He loves you. He protects you. And following him, uh, what does that entail? It it, it entails more protection. It, It entails more experiencing of love. 
It, it, it entails more care, even when it doesn't seem as though it entails all these things. And so he reveals things about himself that for the people of God still ring true today, just as well as then as ever. And we'll be looking at this in a little bit more with this as our going theme that's written in our bulletin, that Jesus' shepherding allegory sets the stage for identifying himself as the true shepherd of his sheep. And we'll be thinking of these three basic fundamental ideas going right through this allegory that's written in your bulletin. Firstly, the false shepherd in the allegory. Uh, Secondly, the true shepherd in the allegory. And thirdly, the ignorance of the allegory. And to begin with the false shepherd in the allegory, we'll begin by reminding ourselves of the setting of the allegory as well as we'll be recognizing something uh, by way of the structure or by by way of how the allegory uh, is laid out. So firstly, uh, regarding the setting of this allegory, we need to be reminded of the context in which this allegory uh, is said. It's uh, said in the context of the statements of Jesus to the Pharisees, from the end of chapter 9, if you remember that. It was then that the Pharisees were confronted by Jesus with the idea that they were guilty of sin. And then when they come in contact with this idea that perhaps it might be that they're guilty of sin, they ask a question to the essence of, really, are we really guilty of sin And then Jesus gives them a sharp answer all the way in the end of chapter 9. If you see this, Jesus says to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, we see, your guilt remains. In other words, if you think that you're innocent in and of yourself, you merely prove yourself to be the guilty one. And then from there, he goes on to our allegory here about shepherding. Uh, which is noteworthy in itself because the very people who he was speaking to, uh, the very people who thought that they, that they themselves weren't guilty of any sin at the end of chapter 9, these people were themselves known as the shepherds of the people of Israel. These were the, the spiritual shepherds in that day. These were the priests. These were the leaders. These were the upper echelon. These were the, uh, the religious elite. These were the, the supposed guides into the throne room of God. And this is the setting of the allegory. And secondly, you can notice uh, that the way that the allegory is structured also tells us something about what's really important, what's the really important lesson that's going on here. And we can, we're going to get into the significance of uh, what that entails as we go along. But suffice it to say for now that if you take a look at your Bibles, you'll notice that the allegory itself bookends, the bookends of the allegory, carry very similar themes. Verses 1 and verse 5 carry very similar themes. They both reference some version of the false shepherd. And so verse 1, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, which in the Gospel of John is another way of saying, Listen up, this is important. Uh, You'll notice that the Gospel of John, when Jesus in other Gospels, he'll say, truly, I say to you. In the Gospel of John, we're we're reminded where he says, truly, truly, I say to you. In the Gospel of John, Jesus uses this phrase to kind of grab our attention, because what he's about to say is something that's incredibly important. Of course, we know, we who know the, the redemptive acts of God, we know how intensely important the topic of shepherding the people of God is. If not to us, certainly to the Most High Himself, it cost it cost him it cost the life of the Son of God, in order to make this analogy, as we see going forward in more sermons. 
And so when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you uh, these things, he's arresting our attention because it's important to us as to the nature of his ministry as a whole. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Uh, In these days, uh, shepherds would put up a wall enclosure for an outside structure where they would keep their sheep at night. Uh, They would uh, install or plant uh, briars or thorns on the top of that wall all around to protect the sheep. And so if someone does end up climbing in, it doesn't really matter what their motives are. They're risking life and limb in order to climb into the wall enclosure. It doesn't matter what their intentions are. You know that their intentions are bad. They're willing to get cut up uh, six ways to Sunday in order to get at whatever it, it is that's in that wall enclosure. And it doesn't take a scientist, it doesn't take a genius to realize that's not good intentions. They have bad intentions, whatever it is. And Jesus refers to someone like this who climbs in another way as a thief and a robber, and then in verse 5, as a stranger. The mentioning of a thief carries the idea of deception. The thief doesn't necessarily have to steal something in order to be considered a thief, but he's called a thief because his nature is deceptive illusory. There's always some sort of trickery or underhandedness about the thief, about this one, some sort of secrecy, some sort of dishonesty that's, that's there. Uh, the mentioning of the robber then carries the idea of violence. A robber in the original, or what I prefer as something uh, otherwise to be translated as a, um, a revolutionary, uh, an insurrectionist or something like, uh, like this. Uh, the, the, the robber is someone who's known more for his actions than for his motives. It doesn't matter so much what the purpose for his violence is. All that matters is that he's doing acts of violence. That is what robbers would be uh, known for uh, when Jesus calls this, uh, this man a robber. In verse 5, says about the false shepherd, A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. In these days, a stranger, if a stranger comes into the wall enclosure that the sheep are in, and the sheep don't know him, they won't go over by him. And then if the stranger calls to him, what they'll actually do is they'll actually run to the other side of the enclosure. Sheep know the shepherd by his voice. And Jesus is here calling the Pharisees thieves. He's calling them robbers. He's calling them strangers. Thieves because uh, their nature is deceptive. They're, de- they're deceptive to the people who they're supposed to minister to. They're robbers because they've mishandled the people who they're supposed to minister to, as we've seen in John chapter 9. And they're referred to as strangers because the people who they're supposed to minister to knew them very well to be hacks and frauds. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons why John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. If you remember this, we heard a very good sermon this, uh, this morning about how he leaps in his mother's womb uh, from being, uh, being in proximity of Jesus. Uh, you know this one is not the stranger, <laughs> to say the least, right? Uh, John the Baptist and many others like him go out into the wilderness because they, the, the, they know very well 
of the fraudulence of the temple hierarchy, and he's not the only one by any stretch of the imagination. Speak to me about other groups uh, later on, how other groups is very well known uh, in this day and age of the fraudulence of the temple hierarchy. In other words, they've climbed in by another way. They've shown themselves to be false shepherds, and Jesus is here calling them out like this, which is what these verses are referring to here. And then moving on to our second thought, the true shepherd of the allegory. We come then to verse 2. And we notice again the structure of the allegory. Uh, If the information about the thief, the robber, and the stranger, plural, strangers, at the end of verse 5, if that's at the outskirts of the allegory, if that takes up the outskirts of the allegory, you'll see what's given that what's given about the true shepherd is in the heart of the passage. This is what is referred to as a chiastic parallelism. You'll see that what's given about the true shepherd is the very meat of the instruction. It's at the heart of the very passage. It's the centerpiece of the focus here. The true shepherd here, just as in the following verses, takes up by far most the most consideration in this small passage because for the obvious reason that the true shepherd is the VIP of this passage. The true shepherd is the VIP of the world. The true shepherd is the VIP of all of redemptive history. And that's why in this little uh, allegory here, the the true shepherd, the information of the true shepherd, at least in my count, takes up three-fifths of the entire allegory here. And he's presented, the true shepherd is presented in various ways. Uh, being known for various traits uh, in this passage. Take a look at verse 2, where it says, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Uh, That is to, to say, the true shepherd is represented as one who is uniquely suited for this role. He's, he's the qualified one. Uh, he's the one who has navigated his way. He's the, he's the one who has come through the appropriate channels in order to be where he is, in order to get there. The outside enclosure for the sheep would have one door built into it, and the sheep would uh, go in and out of that one door, and at night the shepherds would uh, lay sleeping across that door the threshold of the door in order to protect the sheep from bandits, to protect the sheep from predators. They would have to get over him uh, before they would go into the outside enclosure. We, knew, we see that, G, that, uh, that the true shepherd here is the one who's uniquely suited for this role. He's the qualified one that comes through, that, uh, comes through the very, very channel that he needs to in order to get there. Secondly, we see that he's genuine. The true shepherd is the genuine and authentic one. That is, the true shepherd, we get the real deal in him. The true shepherd is known by others in the village. Verse 3 says, To him, the gatekeeper opens. That is, the gatekeeper knows that this true shepherd is not an imposter. Uh, They know him, the gatekeeper knows him by experience with him, that he knows and he can call out this one as the authentic shepherd. Why? Because they recognize him. They know by experience that he is the authentic shepherd. Uh, In these times when multiple flocks of sheep would be in that outdoor enclosure, 
uh, this doorkeeper uh, or this porter or this gatekeeper, however it is that you would want to translate it, uh, would be there to allow access to the shepherds, uh, which means that these gatekeepers, these, uh, these porters, would end up becoming very familiar with them. We see that this true shepherd is a genuine, authentic man, authentic role here is being portrayed as. And the true shepherd is represented as the owner of the sheep. He is uh, the owner, that is, he has propriety over the sheep. Verse 3 continues, Jesus says, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. In this time, as well as in our own time as well, uh, shepherds in Israel would call their flocks, and the sheep would uh, run towards them. They'd say, hop, 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 and the the sheep would know exactly, that's my master, that's my owner. They would come directly to the shepherd. Sometimes the shepherd would even sing to the sheep, and the sheep know the voice of the shepherd, and then they would come running to the sheep. I read a story about this in preparation, uh, where uh, a shepherd... Uh, was singing to his sheep, crossing a busy street. The shepherd would watch for the traffic, and then uh, he would sing his own special sheep song, and the sheep would know that now is the correct time to cross the busy street uh, right outside of one of the gates in Jerusalem. It sounds rather familiar to Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. Listen to this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And even whenever the shepherd would want to call a single sheep uh, out of the fold, he'd uh, call out something that was characteristic to specifically that one sheep, that he wants to isolate uh, that one particular sheep because he needs to see him for whatever reason. He would say, "Uh, listen, um, uh, uh, white nose, come on here, come on over here. Dark hoof, uh, come here, I need to trim your, your hoofs. Um, uh, brown spot, come at my feet. And, of course, that uh, sheep would, uh, would come. He would know the flock collectively, and he would know the, flo- the, the flock uh, particularly as well. We see that this true shepherd is the owner of the sheep. And also, we see that uh, this true shepherd is represented as the leader, the protector of his sheep. Uh, verse 4, when he's brought out all his own, He goes out before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Uh, That is, he's the defender, he's the provider. Uh, He brings out his sheep, he brings out his own to the source of food and to the source of water in the wilderness. Notice that he doesn't drive his flock, but he leads his flock. He leads from the front, that is. He doesn't drive them from from behind. And you see the, the word picture very clearly He leads his flock. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen to him first. He leads his flock. So we see that the true shepherd is the leader, the protector, the defender of the sheep. Brothers and sisters, in case um, this isn't abundantly uh, clear to you by now, this perfectly describes our Jesus. This perfectly describes uh, the great shepherd of his sheep. That is, he's the one who's uniquely qualified. He's the one who has gone through the proper channels to get exactly where he needs to be. He's the one who's come in the fullness of time as a result of a covenant promise. Uh, Through the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, through the line of Abraham, uh, the line of King David, all the way to a virgin uh, in Bethlehem, 
and in time born of her. This is our Lord, uh, the genuine one, the authentic one. Uh, all of heaven knows him. He's adored by all the hosts of heaven. He's well attested to by all the prophets of old. He's one who's known so well through the halls of heaven and uh, in, in the heavenly realms that even in his very ministry, he is recognized to be the very one, the very genuine shepherd of the sheep, even by the demons themselves. This is our king, uh, the owner of his sheep. Uh, that is to say, he's not some generic savior of some nameless and faceless uh, bunch who he really doesn't have any idea who they are. He just hears their prayers at some uh, point. He has no idea of really the needs of any, any of them. No, he has intimate awareness of all our days and all of our hours. He knows what's specific about each of us to call us all by name. The Bible says that he knows our frame. He knows that we're but dust. How much more does he know our hearts? We see that he's the, the, the true owner of his sheep. This is, this is Christ. He's the leader of his sheep. He's the protector of his sheep who even in this very worship service still guides us by means of his word to this very night. He still directs us in the way that we should go because he himself has gone there first, uh, even and especially into the mouth of death itself to be risen the third day. Uh, that is, he's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, as the NIV will say in Hebrews uh, chapter 12. I love that, uh, that, that translation, the pioneer and perfecter of our, of, of our faith. Through his work, that is, he's imposed upon this age the benefits of the age to come, and he is himself the mediator and the leader of the new covenant. He's the leader, the protector of the sheep. And notice in the allegory, there's only one of him. In this allegory, there's only one of him. In this allegory, there's many false shepherds, right? We, we know from verse 1 and verse 5 uh, there's the thief, uh, there's one, there, there's the robber, there's two, and uh, the end of verse 5 says strangers in the plural, so there's at least two, and that's four by my count. There's only one true shepherd. This speaks of uh, his genuineness. This speaks of, uh, of, of, of his un, the unparalleled nature of our true shepherd. This speaks of his own sufficiency. That is to say, the world is filled with many false shepherds. There's only one true shepherd for the sheep. He's un, 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 unequaled, unparalleled, beyond compare in every, every category. He's the true shepherd in this allegory. And so the question for us now is, why didn't the Pharisees get this? Why didn't the Pharisees recognize this? Um, what's the reason that they couldn't see this? What accounts for, as our third point says, uh, the ignorance of the allegory? Because it's not as though the allegory uh, itself hid or obscured his teaching so well that the meaning was so well buried that even the educated elites couldn't grasp what he's saying. I think there's many uh, reasons. There's deeper reasons that's at the root of their ignorance. And of course, there's many reasons that we can think about tonight uh, as to the nature of the ignorance of the allegory. Uh, but for sake of time, we'll just give a couple for us here. Why is it that they, according to verse 6, did not understand what Jesus was saying to them? Firstly, and more generally, um, 
as the rest of the New Testament says, Ephesians 4 verse 18, it's something that's, uh, it says it's because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Uh, Romans 1, uh, you're seeing an embodiment of Romans 1. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. One of the functions of sin is to be reduced to an infantile state where otherwise clear, otherwise sensible, otherwise open truths about human nature and the need that we have for Christ would be obscured, uh, not by the logic or the reason or anything like, uh, like that. Uh, talk to me later about the nature of the allegories of the very Pharisees that are written of here. They're very complex. They're obscured by their love for sin. And that's what sin does. It obscures what is otherwise clear. And it reduces us down to an infantile sort of state. That is to say, sin has an effect upon the mind that prohibits it at an intellectual level. Sin robs us of our humility. It robs us of our discretion. And when the truths of the gospel come to a mind that, not, that is not renewed in the image of its creator, the only course, recourse of action for this mind is to reject these claims as disagreeable or to regard these claims as nonsensical. Either way, you cut it, sin and its effects leaves us in a quagmire of ignorance. And it's not an ignorance, by the way, that can be overcome by education. It's not an ignorance that can be uh, overcome just by teaching them more stuff. Just teach that ignorance out of them or anything like, uh, like that. It's an ignorance that can only be remedied by the true work of the Holy Spirit. So they didn't understand what he was saying to them because of the debilitating and the corrosive effects of sin in general. Secondly, they did not understand what he was saying to them because they themselves fit the very description of what Jesus is talking about here. They themselves fit the very description of what Jesus is talking about. They embody what it is to be a thief. They themselves embody what it is to be the robber. They themselves embody what it is to be the stranger. We've said above that uh, the thief is bent on deception. The robber is recognized by his violence. The stranger is, is known by his fraud. These all reflect upon them in particular here and in the rest of the Gospel of John. That is to say, they themselves are deceived. They don't know. They can't discern the voice of the true shepherd because they themselves are deceived. They themselves have been shown how to operate in severity. They have no idea what it's like to be shepherded. They have no idea what it's like to shepherd, uh, that is to say, to lead the flock from the front instead of driving them from behind. They themselves are strangers. They have no concept of not being frauds. And what does this do? It causes them to be unable to interpret something that was otherwise rather easy to understand. It causes them to be ignorant of the meaning of the allegory. And notice we don't say this, uh, by the way, in order to insinuate that their ignorance makes them somehow inferior to us. That's, of course, not what we're saying at all. Because were it not for the grace of God piercing the heart of stone that we had had before being regenerated, of course, this ignorance uh, would be ours as well. 
Uh, that is to say, just in case we think that we're somehow uh, uh, better than them for not being ignorant of the allegory, I would like us to just think for a minute about what the allegory itself calls us. Sheep. It calls us sheep. And if you don't know, uh, I'll explain more in sermon, in some later sermons and perhaps give some hilarious stories, but sheep are notoriously dumb animals. Uh, they're notoriously unintelligent. And think of what the picture is here. If you look at the allegory here, that of the shepherd, the Lord Jesus, uh, going out before his sheep. He's looking for food and water, and the only reason why they get the food and water into their system is because the shepherd has told them to do so. Friends, we're, we're not to look at these people, the thief, the robber, the stranger, the religious elite, and gloat and triumph or something like that. Okay, We're not supposed to do that. We're, we're supposed to look at these people with sorrow. We're supposed to look at these people with regret. Because were it not for the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives, this would very easily be us, or worse, very easily. And then, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to look at our shepherd. And we're supposed to look at, at, at him by faith and say, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, for making me to hear your voice. Uh, thank you for protecting me uh, from the one who's climbed in by another way. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for protecting me from becoming what I am by nature. Thank you for going before me, for leading me out. Thank you for, 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 for calming me. Thank you for, for, for directing me as to where I should go. Thank you for teaching me your voice, the one that you even sing over me. And thank you for, for counting me as a part of, of, of your flock. Thank you for, for counting me as a part of, of, of making me a part of your sheep. Thank you for the singular care. Thank you for the singular attention that you exercise over me minute by minute. We should be quick to say thank you for all of this and glorify God as we ought. We've seen tonight that Jesus' shepherding analogy or allegory sets the stage for identifying himself as the true shepherd of his sheep. I have a couple of applications, brothers and sisters, for us as we close tonight. Uh, firstly, uh, this is a call to belief. belief. Believe that Jesus is your shepherd. Trust in Jesus as your very shepherd. It's one thing to say that Jesus is a shepherd. It's another thing, I suppose, to say that Jesus is the shepherd. It is another thing entirely to say that Jesus is your shepherd, that he has ownership over you. This is the intention of the new covenant, is that you believe and that you trust that Jesus is your shepherd that you are a member of his flock and his fold. You are under his care and under his protection. He's not a robber. He, he has no evil violence. Uh, uh, he does no violence to you. Uh, he's not the thief. He has no evil intentions for you. He's uh, not the stranger. That is to say, he's not a fake. He's not a fraud. He's not a phony. He is your shepherd. And we're called to believe that. And this means that everything that you experience, you experience as his sheep. Everything that you suffer, you are suffering because somehow he is shepherding you through this. 
every joy that you experience, every moment of bliss and happiness that you have, you're being given it because he is doing something to shepherd you minute by minute. So believe that every stage, every circumstance in your life, Jesus is shepherding you through this. Believe that Jesus is your shepherd. Secondly, brothers and sisters, we, as his sheep, have certain duties then to our shepherd. We have duties to our shepherd. There's a popular trend now that exists largely online uh, where it's considered cool and it's uh, considered intellectual uh, to be as loose with the dictates of our Christian duty as possible without explicitly denying Christianity. In other words, there's a significant downplaying of the commands of Scripture, the obligations uh, to believe certain things and to do certain things as an outliving of the Christian life. Uh, They'll say things like, you you don't need to believe that old traditional stuff uh, anymore, specifically the traditional stuff about marriage and sexuality. Um, You don't need to uh, believe in in any of that. Uh, You don't need to believe that the Bible, you know, is the word of God or something like that. It's just a book of people who who had experiences about what they thought that God was uh, was like. Uh, Repent, you don't have to repent. You know, God doesn't care about stuff like that. He is just just an only love. That's, That's it. He doesn't care. Essentially, these are the voices of strangers trying to mimic, ironically, the world and the shepherd at the same time. And if we carry over the analogy of sheep to a shepherd to this way of thinking, the flock would be decimated in one day. Our duty is to know his voice. Our duty is to be well-trained in his voice. Uh, Our duty is to know his voice such that we would know what he would have us do, what what he would have us think, what he would have us believe. Our duty is to be familiar with his voice. Our duty is to follow him where and when he calls. Sometimes where and when he calls doesn't make sense. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes you don't want to do it. Sometimes it's as though we perhaps know what's best and that we as the sheep actually have a better vantage point. Uh, But we're not the shepherd. He is. Our duty is to follow him where and when he calls. Our duty is also to flee from the thief, the robber, and the stranger. That is to to say, to be quick to recognize how great of a threat that sin really is. And not to play with it. Uh, not, Not to poke fun at it. Or to tell ourselves that we're above it. Or that we're strong enough to handle it on our own. Or that it's not serious or something like that. No, 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 no. Our duty as sheep is to run from it. To repent of it. Uh, to seek counsel uh, about it. Sin is destructive, and so it only knows how to destroy. Our duty is to flee from the thief, the robber, and the stranger. We have duties belonging and belonging to the shepherd and overseer of our souls, and we bring great honor to our great shepherd in performing them. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is to us the high priest of uh, the new covenant, the great shepherd of the sheep, 